Fifty years ago, a switch was pulled in central Auckland and a television signal beamed out to sets across the Queen City. Television had arrived in New Zealand. The earnest self-importance of those first three hours seem a world away from the unending gloss and glitter of today's multiple channels. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Eric Frickberg looks at the transition and asks what's in store for the next 50 years. 30 seconds, openers up first, slot on A, followed by Bangkok, slot on B. Tonight on 3 News, you A production team at TV3 is putting out its 7,474th nightly news bulletin and plans to be doing so at least another 7,000 times. This is 3 News. TV3's far older state-owned rival, TVNZ, has two and a half times as many news programmes under its belt and a brief pre-news incarnation as well. Ten. Stand by X, everyone. Standing by X. Five. I'll give four, you two minutes. Three, two. Stand by. Both major channels have been humming along in top gear for years, but not even the most optimistic of their staff can be certain that technology, which made this glittering industry, is not subtly undermining it, finding a way to bypass all this expense. Stand by two. And mix. Or that corporate manoeuvring, repeated staff layoffs and a business cycle that really bites will not keep TV companies perched precariously on a knife edge indefinitely. Stand by still still A. Go. And reveal. Reveal. And reveal. Neither the glitz nor the uncertainty was apparent when the TV business began. Although 50 years ago sounds like a lifetime, television technology was already quite old when it was introduced into New Zealand. TV broadcasts had actually begun in London 24 years before they started here. The broadcast historian Patrick Day says their introduction into New Zealand was delayed because politicians in this country didn't really want to have TV at all. Television was held back quite deliberately by government for years. Both Labour and National had had their attitudes determined really by World War II and by the Depression. They were conservative and wanted to relax with what they had and didn't want too much in the way of change. Typically for the Times, a committee of officials was set up to examine the matter, then disbanded, then revived. Television was finally presented as a gift of the nation by a cabinet minister of the day, Raymond Board. The government proposes to introduce television. The decisions are the result of very careful consideration and I am sure we can introduce a system which will be a lasting asset to New Zealand. No recording remains of the initial broadcast on the 1st of June 1960, but a version does survive of the day when TV spread to Christchurch a year later. We'll be seeing the animal story at 7.30, our mutual friend at 8.35 and Danger Man at nine o'clock. Meanwhile, this is Alan Dunford saying good night from Channel 3. Continuity announcers were a big part of TV's folksy and friendly style in the early days. The station even took upon itself to tell people when it was time to turn off the set, go to bed and get a good night's sleep. It's good night from Channel 2. 
Despite the benign role exemplified by the goodnight Kiwi, the television industry did not remain as well behaved as its designers might have hoped for. At fault was a fast maturing current affairs department, bent on breaking new ground. Patrick Day says this had been anticipated and feared by governments in the 1950s who sought to block it. Broadcasting news, radio news as it was then, was written in the Prime Minister's office. New Zealand was most unusual for having a news broadcast that effectively was a propaganda arm of the government. And I think both Labour and National parties realised that with the introduction of television things would change. In TV's first decade, current affairs staff were determined to cancel out all those years of deference. A veteran broadcaster, Ian Johnston, was one of a team which didn't just take politicians to task, but often galloped way ahead of their own corporate managers. The bosses didn't like it very much, um, and you can't really blame them. But for all that, they knew there was a function there which was to bring the political powers in the land, uh, government and opposition, to account in front of the people. Some of this accounting produced a state of heightened belligerence between interviewers and the government. This was a clash in the mid-70s between a television interviewer, Simon Walker, and the then Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon. Prime Minister, it's the customary caption, in an just, interview just for the interviewer to ask questions yes, and for them well, to be answered I'm singly. Not, I'm not much interested in what's customary. This is a very important matter for New Zealand. I agree, and I want Prime you, Minister. I want you to help me to clarify the issue. Prime now, Minister, the I would thing, like to ask individual questions, yes, and I would be grateful do. if you would answer them on an individual well, basis. Well, of course I will, but you're not going to set the rules, my friend. This is an important This interview matter. on the danger to New Zealand from Soviet naval expansion degenerated into a bad-tempered exchange. With respect, Prime Minister, this yes. is not the statement that I was questioning well, you about. With, with re- I would like with, to put one respect, last point to you. With equal respect, you are not asking me the questions that you were kind enough to put to me so that I could get technical advice on. Prime Minister, I, I will not, I will have, not have some time. smart Alex interviewer changing the rules of the game halfway through, Mr Walker. Those early years of current affairs produced many clashes like this one. And along with a current affairs department flexing its muscles was a developing news service, a series of information shows, as well as giant multi-episode documentaries on topics such as both world wars, human evolution or the rise of civilization. For many people, though, TV was there to entertain rather than inform. Eager viewers soon found that for a licence fee, amounting to little more than the cost of a weekly trip to the cinema, they could spend hours watching popular entertainment. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. Space, the final frontier. Oh, spare me days, mate. There's no need for all that. We've got a decent track here now. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Just a minute, Samantha. Let's not fly off the handle. Out. This minute. All right. If that's the way you feel about it, but just change him back. Never. Samantha. Out. Samantha, you listen to me. Samantha. Samantha, open this door. Do you hear me? By the mid-70s, two publicly-owned channels, TV1 and TV2, were competing for viewers and, according to Ian Johnston, provided the best television New Zealand has ever had. Oh, it was heady stuff. We were at last able to compete. But it was competition managed, which, again, ensured the public good. 
there was an agreement that at least one night of the week had to be commercial free because those were the days when viewers were important. They weren't just commercial fodder. You had to recruit them, seduce them, win them. At the same time, the politics were exciting, the engagements were vibrant. We also were producing things like The Governor, and the whole thing was uh, very exciting, and it was 90% New Zealand. But all this exuberance cost money. So did inbuilt inefficiencies, such as expensive taxi rides for staff between production offices scattered all over town. Before long, hard-nosed commerce began to displace creative zeal. Advertising spread through almost the whole week. Public role models like the ABC were condemned as a graveyard of worthy causes. American consultants told journalists to take intellectuals and officials out of their stories in favour of so-called real people. Publicly owned television was commercialised, told to earn its keep and pay its masters, the state, a dividend. These changes were overseen by the then chairman of the Broadcasting Corporation, Hugh Rennie QC, under intense pressure from a fourth Labour government bent on reform. He says the opening up of broadcasting frequencies and the pending arrival of a private sector channel forced TVNZ to change its ways. They were going to have to look outwards and attract audience in competition with the third channel. It was quite clear that three channels were really going to have only about the same amount of money as two channels had to live on. The givens meant that one had to go into a commercial model, an SOE model, had to structure it in a way which meant that those three would operate as equally as um, could reasonably be achieved. It had to be done pretty rapidly, which is another thing in politics. Businesses tend to transition gradually and with care. Politics, you're doing one thing today and another thing tomorrow. The net outcome was as good a system as we could get inside the constraints that we weren't able to change. According to Ian Johnston, the changes that did ensue brought a huge loss. Of all the media that we have, public television somehow seems to be the only one that's been completely debauched by commercialism. As John Clark has said, they turned television into a shop. But Hugh Rennie says the alteration was less apparent than Ian Johnston thinks. I think it was a shop well before I arrived there. The principal revenue stream in television in 1984, far and away, was advertising. Something close to $9 out of every 10 that TVNZ spent came from advertising. So it was a shop. Which days there were ads on or not was really just a matter of rearranging the goods in the shop. Mark Sainsbury is a 30-year TV veteran whose career spanned both sides of that great divide. He takes issue with the view that the old days were necessarily better. You often hear, you know, people say, oh, look, you know, whatever happened to the old values and the old programs? I suggest people go back and look at the old programs because I know I have a memory of programs and I've been back and dug them out of the archive and looked at them and thought, jeepers, that was boring. Or, I mean, at the time it was incredibly exciting because it was cutting edge for the time. But no one would sit and watch a lot of the production values you had back in those days. I mean, everything has changed. Mark Sainsbury's program these days has a little bit of cerebral current affairs on leaky homes, for instance, rather more on emotive stories such as teenage drunks and, wherever possible, an oddity of the day. He says TV has had to adapt or get left behind. You know, the one-hour interview show that used to be on. Well, if people thought they could work and people would watch it, you'd like to think they would do it. For our programme, you've got to make it interesting for people to watch. 
Now, that doesn't mean you don't tackle, you know, serious issues. But you'll also do a story on a lost dog, because people love a lost dog story or some cute animal story. It's a mix, and the advantage always with close-up was you could offer that variety. The ideas of Hugh Rennie and Mark Sainsbury have now prevailed for two decades. Far from rebelling, people are watching more television now than they ever have, and there's been a significant growth even in just the last three years. That's been caused in part by a growing number of channels to choose from and in part from a growing population. But Rick Friesen, who's chief executive of the New Zealand Television Broadcasters Council, says there's another reason. The technical quality of the image on a home TV screen is far better than it's ever been. Viewer figures are wonderful. People are staying home and watching more television than ever before. People are buying these larger screen flat TVs. The viewing experience is just that much better. Uh, It's now high definition, it's widescreen. It's much more a cinema type experience. Rick Friesen's figures also show earnings for the TV industry as a whole rose over the past decade before slipping back to 2003 figures during the recent recession. But the upward movement is now back on and has saved TVNZ from a trip into the red for this year's annual accounts, as had been feared six months ago. The company's chief executive, Rick Ellis, says TVNZ has enjoyed a last-ditch reprieve after dire warnings about its finances earlier. If you go back to the January-February time frame, the market was still looking pretty bleak. Uh, we were in our sixth quarter, in fact, of year-on-year decline. But the market picked up in March and has continued strongly April, May and uh, the lay down for June. So um, we're predicting a a better result than what I had done at the half year. Will it be in profit though, do you think? We're targeting an operating profit for the year. It's not clear what that profit will be, but it's not thought likely to be large. And while television overall has been growing, TVNZ's position has slipped over time. Figures from the ratings agency AGB Nielsen show TV1's audience share dropped from almost 40% in 2000 to around 25% nine years later. TV2 fell from just under 30% to around 20%. Despite this, Rick Ellis insists TVNZ still knows how to attract and keep large numbers of viewers. We've moved with changes in audience taste and there are still some just fabulous big shows. If you think about the final of MasterChef a couple of weeks ago drew an audience of nearly 1.6 million people out of our 4 million citizens. So we're still very, very proud of those sorts of you know big event shows and uh, the audience levels that we garner for all genres of programming from news through reality through to high quality drama are at Again, pretty much record highs. The trouble is there are many channels competing for advertising. So while more people watched, the advertising industry paid lower prices for each spot. This helped pull down TVNZ's value as a company. The state watchdog, the Crown Organisation's monitoring unit and TVNZ's own statements show the value of the broadcaster falling from $312 million seven years ago to $190 million now. One man whose job it is to worry about this is the Minister of Broadcasting, Jonathan Coleman. He makes clear fixing it is a job for the government and for broadcasting executives. Certainly there has been no discussion around uh, any sort of privatisation or sale of television New Zealand. Um, and when you look at it, it probably wouldn't currently be a very attractive asset for a buyer. And the public has a huge amount of equity 
tied up in it. So, you know, we really need to focus on getting a uh, return for the public on that investment. But we also, at the same time, need to make sure we are providing public broadcasting services. The government has said it could privatise some state assets if it wins a second term in power. But it's understood to be more interested in big targets like electricity SOEs worth billions than in TVNZ. However, deciding not to sell TVNZ is a different thing from enjoying owning it, as the Minister of Finance, Bill English, appeared to indicate during comments made just after this year's budget. The government has a number of assets that it owns where changes in technology are putting pressure on those businesses, and the two examples would be TVNZ and New Zealand Post. And because we are the custodians of those assets, we need to think pretty hard about how to uh, stop them losing value. That involves a lot of challenges like how much to invest in rail, how to deal with fading network businesses like Post and TV. We feel an an obligation to preserve and grow taxpayers' value. So how will the government preserve and increase its value? The Minister, Jonathan Coleman, says it's a work in progress, the main direction of which should become apparent within a couple of months. One of the things that we're very keen is to get some clarity around TVNZ's role because you know it was operating under this dual mandate of the Charter where it was neither fish nor fowl and I think that made it very difficult for them. One possibility would be to house as much public broadcasting under one roof as possible, freeing TVNZ from the clutter of trying to be commercial and publicly focused at the same time. The government spends $258 million on public broadcasting each year, and that's spread across a range of entities. Now, there's going to be continued uh, pressure on the finances of public broadcasters, and we need to make sure we can get the best value for money for the public. Now, we're not suggesting at all mashing together different entities like Radio New Zealand and TVNZ. There's some big cultural differences there. But are there ways in which entities could work together to provide better value, and that may range from uh, sharing studio space premises through to integrated news gathering and a whole lot on the spectrum between those two options. So it's not a simple big bang theory, it's saying what do different government owned uh, media entities have in common that could maybe shared uh, without massively disrupting the outputs and culture of any one organisation. Dr Coleman says this push could be focused on the Freeview channels TV6 and 7 when their current funding arrangement finishes in mid-2012. In the meantime, TVNZ is continuing to nurse its way out of the recent recession while remaining acutely aware of its long-term structural challenges. Its troubles are shared to some extent by TV3. That company has always cut its cloth to fit, avoiding the profligate salaries that once bedeviled TVNZ and eschewing its rival's palatial head office for a rough building at the panel beater's end of town. Despite this care, TV3 came unstuck through an event not of its making, a highly leveraged takeover by an Australian private equity firm, Ironbridge. This issue has been watched closely by a business journalist with the New Zealand Herald, John Drennan. I guess like a lot of companies which were bought two or three years ago by private equity at the boom, they pay too much for it. That's one of the issues. And one of the other things was they didn't put enough money themselves and they they took in too much debt. The problems really about Ironbridge and TV3 are not about how it makes money from advertising and from being a broadcaster. It's about um, how it can pay its debt and pay for its interest. What sort of figures are we talking about in terms of debt and interest? 
on the basis of the recent restructuring, it appears that they'll be asked to pay around about $91 million a year, and it will be very, very hard for any company to be able to sustain that. You have to question about whether they were ever able to pay that back from the standard ways of making money, which is advertising. It's hard to work out the financial details of TV3. The firm's parent company is MediaWorks. Neither that company's chief executive, Susan Turner, nor its chairman, Brent Harmon, were available to be interviewed for this program. John Drennan is convinced TV3 will carry on. He's just not sure how. TV3 will always be there, and probably C4 will as well. There's no question, really, that they're going to disappear off the face of the earth. There is a market, they have a niche, they have a brand, if you like. So they will always be there. The question really about free-to-air TV in general at the moment is what market do they serve? And what, what I guess what TV3 provides is, is content in the end, I mean, for a certain niche. One of the problems for both TV3 and TVNZ is the competition to buy popular TV shows from overseas. That pushes up their cost. Detailed figures are kept confidential, but a favourite show like Desperate Housewives can cost twenty-five to $50,000 an episode. Price quotes issued by TVNZ to advertising agencies indicate that cost is probably worthwhile. So popular is the show that advertisers will pay up to $16,000 for a single 30-second commercial spot within the programme. But it's a high-stakes game, requiring constant viewer loyalty to stop that advertising rate from dropping. And homegrown programmes are even more of a challenge and need public money, such as the $8 million over two years that New Zealand On Air paid for tv Three show Outrageous Fortune. Even more problematic is the steady growth in the number of TV channels being broadcast. The AGB Nielsen figures show the main subscriber channel Sky almost tripled its market share in the past decade. The company's chief executive in New Zealand is John Fillett. We're closing in on 800,000 subscribers. We started uh, 20 years ago and we're up to close to 50% penetration. So it's about 1% to 2%. In a good year, we should go up by 2%. In a tough year, maybe we only go up by 1%. And every time we add a new channel, like we just added the travel channel, we got a lift of viewership from it. Each new specialised channel on Sky might take less than half of 1% of the audience, which would hardly endanger desperate housewives. But if enough new niche channels emerge, they could inflict death by a 1,000 cuts. TV3 star presenter John Campbell is frank about the problems in dealing with subscriber TV. When I go home and turn on Sky, you, you know, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of channels. But not only are there dozens of channels, which is problematic when you are one of the old channels, because free-to-air broadcasting is tremendously expensive. And most of the channels on the Sky platform, not all of them, Sky Sport does an exceptional job, but most of the rest of them are merely retailers for products they've bought wholesale from elsewhere. And so you're competing against people who don't have the production costs, who are merely retailing television. It's much cheaper to screen an episode of some American sitcom than it is to make an episode of Campbell Live, which is a relatively expensive program to make for a network like TV3. If this was not enough of a challenge, there's a bigger one, not around the corner, but already in the room. The internet can offer information so fast, people don't need to turn on their TV set to get the latest news. Internet material is often free and frequently pirated. John Campbell says no one has come close to working out how to pay for all this. I think anyone who tells you they understand this stuff is lying through their teeth or is a kind of Cinderella fairy tale character. 
I mean, we're talking, you know, a wee while after the British elections, but every time I went to The Guardian or The Times for their splendid, magnificent, you know, second-to-none coverage of the British elections, I felt guilty about the fact that I was getting this magnificent journalism for free. Now, if two of the greatest newspapers in the world don't understand how to get money out of me for consuming their product, then who the hell does? Both TVNZ and TV3 have appointed IT experts to try to answer the question. TVNZ's guru is 37-year-old Tom Cotter. He says his firm is having to provide television on the internet as well as via a TV signal. Things moving to IP and clearly, of course, the internet has driven a change in consumer expectations. It enabled the ability for people to get things when they want it how they want it and watch it when they want it. So it actually drove a change in business philosophy for broadcasters that they had to change the way that they delivered their business for, their business philosophy. Tom Cotter's counterpart at TV3 is John Allen. He thinks the threat of the internet will make TV companies focus more than ever on their knitting, making programmes, not running an on-the-face-of-it exciting TV company. Essentially, we're not a platform. We're a content aggregator and uh, that skill will stand us in good stead in the future. We're aware, of course, of the fragmentation of platforms and the plan is to be on each and every one of them um, if, if it's humanly possible. And so, uh, yeah, it, I think it just brings a sharper focus on our business as, as becoming more content-related and less dependent on single methods of distribution. But John Campbell points out that all this costs, certainly as far as TV reporting is concerned. The kind of journalism that we hope for, that costs money and involves time and involves research and involves listening and looking and all of those things that we hold there cost money. Where's the money coming from? That, for me, is the big question. For Māori, public television is alive and well, aided by government money to help fund two channels run by Māori television. For other New Zealanders, public service broadcasting is an elusive thing, hemmed in by commercialism on all sides, sometimes hard to find or even recognise. But commercial broadcasting, too, is struggling into a powerful headwind. The man who revolutionised TV in this country, Hugh Rennie, says he warned during hearings 25 years ago that this would happen. I said at the time that I didn't think anyone would want to be in free-to-air television broadcasting by the late 1990s. And a fair number of people in the room when I said that roared with laughter. They thought it was extremely funny and um, self-interested. But I was quite sincere about that. And, And the only thing I can say is I was about 10 years out. Still more changes lie just around the corner. Tom Cotter. We are truly on a logarithmic scale. So anybody who thinks things are going to slow down are completely wrong. Things are only going to get faster and faster. Change is only going to come quicker. Computers are only going to get smaller. Storage is going to get cheaper. Processing power is you know, going to become absolutely massive. You know, we've only just begun to fathom the implications on businesses. And you know, the recommendations out there are that you will not have time for every change to strategize about it or sit down and navel gaze and have... 300-page strategy decks, the recommendations are that you're going to have to start trusting your intuition because things are just moving so fast. Just over the horizon is almost certainly 3D television or even holographic TV, where a 3D image doesn't emerge from a screen but somehow hangs in the middle of the air. Scientists will almost certainly come up with even more such wonders, but managers and economists will have their work cut out, making them pay. 
In TV's second half-century, theirs is a journey without maps across an ocean which might not exist in the direction of, according to one, who knows where. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Eric Frickberg. Technical production was by Colette Janssen and it was produced by Sue Ingram.